Welcome to Using Our Library Voices, a podcast that represents yet another way that Harris County Public Libraries provide information and resources to enrich lives and strengthen communities through innovative programs and services both within and beyond our walls. My name is Sedina. I'm a children's services librarian at the Barbara Bush Branch in Cypress Creek, and I'll be your host for this episode. February is a month of celebrations. In this episode, we will discuss Lunar New Year, Black History Month, and some favorite fiction focusing on that elusive yet oh-so-desirable glow bestowed by Cupid. There are many cultures that celebrate the year according to a lunar or lunisolar calendar, meaning they measure their year by the moon's cycles. Lunar New Year is most often celebrated by Mid-Eastern or Eastern societies. You may even know your own Chinese zodiac animal. In the Year of the Ox, we learn a little of the history behind the traditions that shape how our neighbors celebrate the lunar year with festivals and holiday meals. My name is Nancy Hugh, and I'm usually in the background of this podcast. But today, we're going to chat about the Lunar New Year celebration with Miss Rebecca Becerra of Asia Society, Texas, here in Houston. Rebecca, tell us a little about yourself. So my name is Rebecca Becerra, and I'm the Education Outreach Coordinator at Asia Society, Texas, in Houston. And a little bit of what I do is that I help to coordinate all the different tours and lessons for families regarding the exhibitions and art building. And I also help with planning a lot of the family events, such as the Lunar New Year event and our Asia Fest Festival and all the different activities that you can do when you go into our space. Awesome. I really love what Asia Society does for our community. Let's get into it and talk about what is the Lunar New Year? So the Lunar New Year traditionally marks the beginning of the spring cycle. Remember, the Lunar New Year is based on the different phases of the lunar calendar, but there's a lot of misunderstanding around that because actually it is a mixture of lunar and solar. And in ancient China, this was very significant because it helped a lot with agriculture and the lunar calendar helped with being able to tell the changes of the seasons a lot more accurately for them because it divided the year into 24 solar terms. And so the beginning of the year starts with spring for them, and so hence the Lunar New Year. My family being Chinese, I've always just called it Chinese New Year, and I'm only really familiar with the way that my family specifically celebrates this huge holiday. Could you tell me a little bit more about how different Asian countries celebrate the Lunar New Year? For example, Vietnam is one country that has the Lunar New Year is called Tet. They typically celebrate it by eating foods such as Ban Tet, which literally translates to New Year bread or New Year rice because they weren't Ban. It's more like a, the, the word for carb. And typically the Ban Tet has the sticky rice with mung bean and pork steamed in a banana leaf. They also celebrate it with a lot of fruit trays. There's a meat dish called tiet cha, it's pronounced. And this is braised pork with egg. And for the celebrations in Vietnam, of course, it varies by family. Typically, it's a three-day celebration. And the first day is reserved for the family circle, close relatives. Then the second day is for friends. 
And then the last day is typically for visiting temples or celebrating and wishing well to your teachers. So it really depends, of course, on the family. There's a lot of families in Houston, for example, that don't celebrate for three days or some families that do celebrate for three days. So it just depends on what they choose to do. It's the reason why if you go to Chinatown, you'll see a variety of different ways that Lunar New Year can be celebrated. Another big celebration in Asia is in Korea. So in Korea, they actually call it Sonal. So Sonal means Lunar New Year. And it's also a three-day celebration. And it's surrounded on the theme of giving gifts, so gift giving. Typically, it's a lot to do with ancestors as well as your elders. This is the day in which people would visit their ancestral rites, which are called the chare. On Solal, you pay respect to your elders by bowing to them, which is called the sebe. And after that, you receive gifts as a result, which I think is the most common element in almost every single celebration of Lunar New Year is the receiving of gifts from the red envelope. But of course, it, it, the way that it's done, it, it varies. Yes, the very important red envelopes for the children or the youngest generation. I remember the first time I was invited to one of my best friend's house and she's Vietnamese and they have a very interesting way of having the children ask for the round envelope that they have um, the masks for the lion dancers. They have one at home. And so what they do is that each child would take a turn dancing a lion dance in front of the elders and then bowing. And after they do the dance, they would receive the red envelope. It was very interesting. Yes, you definitely have to earn it somehow, right? <laughs> yes, yes. Which is the same for, for Korea. In Korea, I never had to dance. You know? <laughs> and I've never seen anybody dance. But it's the same mentality of paying respect. And through the respect is when you get the red envelope. And it's typically given from the older generation to the younger generation. And of course, there's the food, you know, the element of food, which is very common. I mentioned the different Vietnamese dishes. But for example, in Korea, the most popular dish is the tokuk. And this is a soup that has rice cakes inside of it. And the reason for that is because there's a lot of symbolism behind it. The rice cakes look like what the currency would have looked like back in the Joseon dynasty. So it represents prosperity. And if you've ever had tokuk, it's a clear broth, which is supposed to represent the, the sincerity and clarity of the new year that you would hope to have. So there's a lot of symbolism that goes around the food and the dishes that they eat. It's interesting because this food is so popular on the new year for Koreans that typically you would ask somebody how many bowls of tokuk you've had to represent your age because it's, it's a big marker of the calendar and coming of age and of a year passing. So you could actually ask somebody how many bowls of tokuk have you had to symbolize how many lunar new years have you seen. It's an interesting way to count it. I know Koreans are, have more of like an emphasis on age than some of the other Asian cultures where the respect to the elders is taken very seriously, even down to the month. Yes, this is true. Well, we were talking about food and on the topic of food, Japan also has a very interesting idea around food on the new year because they actually eat udon noodles because they're long. And when you greet the new year with eating udon noodles is to have a long and prosperous life. 
which is interesting, you know, because in Japan, they actually do not celebrate the Lunar New Year. And this is because in 1873, with the Meiji Restoration, there was a really big push from the Japanese government to, quote unquote, modernize. And in 1873, they decided to switch over completely to the Gregorian calendar, and they dropped any connection that they had to the previous lunar calendar. As a result, today, the tradition of celebrating Lunar New Year has died out. But there are some traces. There is what they call the Koshogatsu, which translates to the Little New Year. And typically, people eat sweet rice porridge on this day. It's a more casual holiday, but you still see a lot of traces of the traditions behind the Lunar New Year stay behind in Japan because on January 1st, it is very common for you to receive what you call a Nengajo, which is a New Year greeting card. And these greeting cards actually have the Chinese zodiac animals on them. So they still use the Chinese zodiac and they still will call this the year of the ox. They simply just don't celebrate it on the same time as all the other Asian countries. I guess maybe that's kind of how I think about it. Having grown up in the United States, it's a new year. Well, there's a new animal. Well, Rebecca, tell me a little bit about the animals are one of the funnest things that I've grown up getting to know about Lunar New Year. So if you've never heard the story of the Great Race, which is what you call it, it's the story of how the cycle order of the animals came to be. And it, again, depends on who tells the story, but the context typically starts with the Jade Emperor. And some people say that the Jade Emperor wanted it to appoint guardians. And others say that it was that he was having a grand feast or party. And the Jade Emperor sent out a message to all the animals. And the first 12 would be named guardians. And so the invitation went out the next day, the day of the party. The ox, which was very, very diligent, got up early. And to get to the house of the Jade Emperor, you have to cross a great river. Another animal got up very early, which was the rat, but the rat couldn't swim across the river. And so the rat, being very witty, jumped on the back of the ox, and the ox, being very diligent, didn't care that the rat was on top of him, so he kept swimming onto the other side. But once they got to the other side of the shore, the rat jumped off of the back of the ox and beat him to be the first one to get in front of the Jade Emperor. So the rat made it as the first animal. Then, out of diligence, and waking up early, the ox was the second animal. The next two animals are the tiger and the rabbit, at least in the Chinese zodiac calendar. And these two animals get third and fourth place from their speed. These are quick animals, so typically associated with speed and quick. Then the fifth animal is the dragon. And there are many different versions of it, but some say that the reason the dragon was late was because Dragon stopped to help a village that was having problems with a drought. And the Jade Emperor was so impressed by this that he took no offense with the dragon being late and gave the dragon his rightful fifth place. After that, we have the snake. And there are two variations of the story. Some say that the dragon and the snake actually arrived at the same time, but the dragon being so grandiose and beautiful took the attention away from the snake and was noticed first, so became the fifth and then sixth the snake. Other stories say that the snake arrived later and that it simply beat the horse because it slithered out of the glass and spooked the horse. As for the horse was late because he was scared of the snake, but the snake made it first. Then comes the horse. Depending on whether or not it was spooked, it was simply a matter of timing. After that comes the goat. 
the goat. Sometimes it's just seen as not as quick as a horse when it was crossing the river. Other people say that it crossed the river with the monkey and the rooster, which are the next two animals in the zodiac cycle on a raft, and that the monkey and the rooster let the goat go off of the raft first. So some say that it was out of generosity and kindness from the monkey and the rooster. Other people say that, no, the monkey, the rooster, and the dog were off fighting a grand war across the seas. And that's why they relate to the invitation from the Jade Emperor. And that they were appointed their ranking depending on how they had helped across the sea. Some people just say that, no, simply the dog was late because as the dog was crossing the river, he had enjoyed his time in the water so much that he spent time frolicking and then was late to the to the invitation of the Jade Emperor. And then lastly, it's the pig. And some people say that the reason the pig was lost is because he overslept. Some people say it was because he overate and then overslept. So there's a lot of different variations of why the pig was last. But that's the story. If you could tell us a little bit more about the how the characteristics of each animal kind of carries over to uh, a person born of that year, or I myself am a pig and am a proud pig, <laughs> but maybe that's also part of my characteristics of my animal. <laughs> well, we can always start. So with the pig, for example, the most common attribute of the pig, it's that the pig has very good manners and is a very intelligent animal and a very prosperous animal. So typically the year of the pig is associated with wealth. That's a great thing. Some of the more negative attributes of the pig is that the pig has a hard time making tough choices. And so those are, again, generalizations. You tell me, do you feel that you have a hard time making hard decisions? I definitely can, but that's also the Gemini in me. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, there's a lot of things that make us who we are and form us into how, how we act, of course. Of course. I think it's funny, though, that the characteristic of the pig is supposed to be that it's well-mannered. But then in Western society, you know, we know you call someone a pig because they're a slob. Yes, there's a lot of the cultural attributes don't always translate very well between the animals. Some of them translate excellently. For example, I am a dog. I was born in the year of the dog. And typically the most common attribute of the dog is loyalty. And I think that in Western countries, when you think of a dog, you also think loyal. Oh, definitely. The only difference is that, for example, one of the negative traits of somebody born in the year of the dog would be that they can be insecure and a bit judgmental. I don't think we often think about dogs being insecure and the Western perspective. So Rebecca, with all these different elements of Lunar New Year, how can we kind of celebrate this year, a year where it's a little bit different from than most years that families would regularly celebrate this holiday? I hear you. It's really tough right now. Well, one of the options, for example, Asia Society Texas is offering a two-week virtual celebration. So a free virtual celebration where you can log in on February 12th, 13, 19, and 26 for new content to be released for that week. It's going to be a variety of videos on dances, food, on crafts. Oh, wow. That sounds awesome. Uh, really special. I'm so happy you guys are doing that for everybody. So that was a little bit about all the different ways that we can celebrate Lunar New Year this year and a little bit of history about how all the animals came to be applied to the Lunar Year celebration. Thank you, Rebecca, for joining us. Yes. Thank you for inviting me.
If you are a fan of Regency-era romance, debutantes, and drama, then the Gabbing with Librarians have got some hot goss for you. They're ready to discuss the books and recent adaptation steaming up Netflix. Are you ready for some Netflix and spill the tea? Hello, welcome to Gabbing with the Librarians. I am your host, Jennifer Finch from the Spring Branch Memorial Branch, and I'm here with Jennifer Bacall from our program's Partnerships and Outreach Department. Hello. And Laura Echevarria from our Aldean branch. Hello. Today we're going to talk about the hottest TV show right now, Bridgerton, which has had over 63 million views on Netflix. This series produced by Shondaland is based off Julia Quinn's New York Times bestselling series of the same name. The first season is based off the book The Duke and I and focuses on the entrance of Daphne Bridgerton into the upper echelons of British society and her relationship with the Duke of Hastings, Simon Bassett. Now, this series is very racy, and this segment may not be appropriate for all ages, but we will try and keep our discussion as clean as possible. Use your best judgment. All right. So, Laura, have you read the Bridgerton books, or have you only watched the series? I have read the book, The Duke and I, and I've watched the series. I've enjoyed both. How do you think they compare? I think the plotline of the series is pretty close to the book itself, but there are things that happen around the main plotline of Daphne and Simon that are don't appear in the book, which I've never read the rest of the of the books in the series, so maybe there are events that may have happened in some of the other books, and some other um, situations are different, like one of the people that wanted to marry Daphne was a lot more part of the plot in the series than he was in the books. And like the prince in the series that she almost that she almost got engaged with was not part of the book. I, I agree. I also have read the books. I've actually read the entire series and the spinoff series and some of the prequels. So I've been involved in the Bridgerton fandom for quite some time. It follows the main plotline really well, and it adds some things. It does add some things in from the later books. The intrigue about who Lady Whistledown is really doesn't start until the fourth book in the series, and that's when in the book series we find out who she is. But they did actually uh, give that away in the end of this series, and I will not. Let's all make a pact not to say who that is for people who have not watched the series yet. I don't want to spoil anyone. And yeah, the, the prince was not a big part. What about you, Jennifer? Have you read the books or just watched the series? So I have not read the books and I actually don't consider myself much of a romance reader. I do try to read widely, but it isn't a genre that I'm well versed in. I decided to try the show because I do love period pieces and I do love fabulous costumes. And I fell into it pretty much immediately. I found it really compelling and engaging and I, I loved the casting and the music and the whole way that the show was presented. I will say that from my opinion, I think the TV show gives a little bit, adds a little bit more of a modern taste to the storyline. Now the books, I would say they're a little bit of a sexier version of Jane Austen has been said many times. And of course, written in a more modern style, but they added a lot of diversity in this series. How well do you think it was handled? 
Well, that really was one of the things that appealed to me and kind of attracted me to the show. I thought it was done beautifully. I love that the male lead is a man of color. Uh, the queen is a person of color. And many of the parts all scattered throughout. And so I was surprised then to later see that there was some commentary that wasn't as favorable. Some people felt like it was still a bit colorblind, that they were still lighter skinned people of color who had the primary role. So I can't speak to that aspect of it. I can only speak from my own experience as a Caucasian American, that for me, it was refreshing and beautiful. And that it was the way I feel like diversity should be presented where it isn't a point of issue. There's no talk about it. It's just that these people are these people. So, you know, whether it's a milliner or a queen, they have the position because of the quality of their work or, the, or their personage and not the color of their skin. So I liked that. What did you think, Laura? I actually also liked the diversity in the show. It was really nice. There were main characters that were part of it. There were secondary characters. There were the minor characters that were also there in the diversity. I didn't even think that it was really necessary to be even part of the plotline that they later on referred to that the whole the African-American queen marrying the white king. And that's why it was all resolved between the different skin color people later. I don't really think that was necessary to be part of the plot, even if uh, it's a minor thing to be to make this whole world so diverse. Well, I think that was their way of giving a nod to the actual history and explaining how, why the two different societies merged. I've heard some commentary that it wasn't enough, that they should have done more, actually, that they should have included information about the plantations and things that British citizens owned in their territories such as in Haiti and other island nations that they were uh, heavily invested in at the time. I, I think it's a good step. I think that they, in including the race and not ignoring it, I think it actually, for me, I, I actually liked that. I can understand your point of view. You wish they just hadn't even brought it up in the first place. I get that viewpoint too. I think as we've seen in the United States, ignoring our past, the differences has not worked out all that well. So by making it an issue in a plot and saying, yes, this did exist, this is a different race, it is something that they've overcome in this series. Now, that's not in the books. I will say none of that is in the books whatsoever. But Julia Quinn, the author of the books, she has come out in defense of all the casting. She says she absolutely loves what they've done with it. And she is 100% behind that. I think she's a good ally, and maybe in the future her books will include more diversity. Now, there is a rather controversial scene toward the end of the season in the book, which I'm going to be purposefully vague about because it, while an extremely major plot point, this is the area that might not be appropriate for all ages. So listeners, beware. So what did you think about how the writers and showrunner handled the scene where Daphne tricked Simon into possibly impregnating her. Laura, what did you think? I guess it's, for many people, it might seem very uncomfortable, I guess, a scene because it's very much about not um, not having consent with what's happening. Because she basically forced him to into the possibility of having a child when he did not want to. I do think it's a scene concerning it's also in a way in the book um, should stay in, in the in the storyline. But yes, it is a very uncomfortable 
a moment between characters that I feel like it was also very much disappeared what was going on later on too quickly in the storyline or a big uh, situation between them was. I, I can understand that. What did you think, Jennifer? Well, it was interesting going in without having any backstory or kind of knowing the trajectory of the plot points. It's never right to use your power in a physical situation without consent. But that said, the way that it was scripted and the way that it was performed, it almost felt like a strange act of love from her. You would witness her watching Simon multiple times with children, around children, and and she saw this desire in him and this kind of gift in him where he would be a good father. And I think it was very confusing to her, you know, why he wouldn't want that for himself. So I feel like in her mind, she justified it as that she was going to give him something that he didn't feel like he deserved, but she knew she could give him. So it does get very complicated and complex. I found that even more compelling than if they had just made it, she's the bad guy, he's the good guy. You know, it wasn't as cut and dry as that. But definitely had, you know, echoes of power. There was some revenge to it. But ultimately, to me, it, it felt like it was it was her unable to, since they didn't have a good communication relationship, it was her kind of taking charge and kind of forcing him to see what was best for him, in her opinion. And I loved when the moment came and free lore, it was too soon for me. Again, not having the context of the books, it was it was right on time where, where they're dancing at the ball and it begins to rain and you literally visually see the moment where they forgive each other and the love deepens and it's like they choose to move on to the next step. Yeah, I, I think there was a lot of complications with that particular scene. She felt like he betrayed her by using her naivete to prevent mm-hmm. her from having something that he knew was one of her dreams mm-hmm. which was children and he thought her mother had explained everything to her like mothers are supposed to and not just give her general not good information being the society that it was nobody gave her any information until she rested it from her lady's maid later on so she felt like he betrayed her and really he honestly thought she knew now Before anyone judges the author too very badly, this book was written in the late 2000s, and this was a form of writing that was prevalent in romance novels in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, and then it it slowly started being a not good thing anymore in the romance writing circles. As more knowledge and more education on consent and what rape actually entails and that it's not a good thing. In comparison to the other romance novels, the scene is not nearly as problematic, but it's still a problematic scene and it's best to look and judge and discuss based on that, but also acknowledge the time in which it was written and the fact that she does not write things like that anymore and even says that she would write it differently now than she did then. But at the same time, it's a major plot point in the book. So I'm, I, I can understand where the, the series writers were thinking, okay, how do we change this so it's not as bad? Mm-hmm. And I think they successfully did that. Well, that's all the time we have today. For those of you listening, tell us what you thought about the Bridgerton series and join us next month for a discussion for our favorite women in history. If you would like to join the discussion, email your thoughts to podcast at hcpl.net. That's harriscountypubliclibrary.net. 
Thank you. And thank you to Jennifer Bacall and Laura Echevarria thank you. for joining me today. Thank you. Join me as I talk a bit with the hosts of one of our very own homegrown Houston-produced podcasts, Opinions While Black. Oz and Dee Randall discuss Black History Month then and now. They discuss how they would like this month of recognition to add to the ongoing conversation about the Black experience in American history. Thank you for joining us. This is Serena from the Barbara Bush Branch Library of the Harris County Public Libraries, and I am here with the hosts of Opinions While Black. I'm Oz, and I go by the name of D. Randall because that's what's on my birth certificate. And we are here to talk about Black History Month and Black culture and everything. Well, not everything, because let's be honest, that's a lot to fill in a 10-minute segment. But we are going to discuss some of the modern issues and modern, hopefully, delights of Black culture and 2020. 21 going forward if y'all have got anything optimistic to start off on i can say really quickly as far as black history month goes as an adult it occurred to me last night that i don't think very much about black history month at all Hmm. unless it's about creating content or something because it was so pushed on us in early grade school Hmm. oh it's black history month so uh they're gonna put a couple of dioramas of george washington carver of george washington (laughs) carver and one of the art kids is gonna draw um Martin Luther King, preferably standing next to Jesus. A white Jesus, by the way. But like, as an adult, if we celebrate Black History Month at all, I do think it is a good time for artists to double down on showcasing their work. Mm. Nowadays, everything's about monetizing what you do. I was thinking about last night, and I had this thought, we have a legacy of taking the least and turning that into the most. Like, I hate that everything has to go back to slavery, but back in the old days, a lot of delicacies and food were based on us using the parts of an animal that the white people didn't use to cook. I think about Black History Month. I think about February. February is like 28 days. There aren't really any days that you... Are there any days that you, like, get off any, like, no work holidays? No no work holidays, bank holidays, none of that. Yet we've turned into something. Like, Mm -hmm. most recently, for me, we put out Black Panther, which is one of the biggest selling movies of all time, when a lot of people complained that it wasn't being pushed as a summer blockbuster because the suits didn't know if it was going to make blockbuster money and it totally did yeah and i think it outdid titanic which is the whitest movie i've ever seen <laughs> do you have any black history month thoughts i've always had this dichotomy with black history month in that the way that it was presented to us it was kind of like i don't know i'm gonna sound like you know the old don lemon when i say this it sounds like it was just forced on us yeah and yeah it didn't oh i hate saying this out loud to me it didn't give any perceived value because of it Mm-hmm. Um, when it's something that, especially when you're in school, something that you felt like you have to do. That's a byproduct of it being kind of cornered into that one piece of the year. It's almost, right. it's almost like, like you said, we're, we're giving the parts of the leftover. Let's just hand over the shortest month. Mm-hmm. We're tired of you guys complaining about not having anything here. You have a month. Be happy. Talk about Rosa Parks. Right. And I think that as I've gotten older, I feel like a good use for that period of time now if we're going to use it as a period of reflection Mm. would be to do something along the lines of a black experience month Mm. where we not only talk about 
the 300 ways that George Washington Carver flipped the peanut, we can put a focus on what is actually being done today by black people. We can talk about resources that are available to black business owners and, and, and bring a heightened awareness to what can we do for the black experience today and not just look at how good or how notable we were in the past. And I think that part of it is what kind of irks me now is that a lot of the focus is on how good we were in the past. Mm. We actually have a lot of black excellence that's being demonstrated today that I would love to take that same amount of time to put attention on. I feel like a lot of the misconception, especially when it comes to the English language, that we use words like black history when y'all are still here. You're not a historical experience. You're a present presence. Right. And it's been weird maneuvering in that space up until recently when it seems like white spaces are finally being open mm -hmm. about blackness being profitable and how we do move the culture and how we do influence the culture. And now that it's profitable, sometimes it feels like you're a celebrity for all the wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it feels like you're getting attention for all the wrong reasons. I worry sometimes when I see something trending in the black, not experience, but as someone who is looking from the outside watching something trending, and all I can think is don't let this be just another fad. Don't let this just pass for that moment. I think that's a lot of what people are holding on to right now is that we're trying to do our best to prolong this moment into something that hopefully can be clung to as kind of the normal. Mm. I know Randall as a content creator, mm. longtime content creator, definitely has seen the trends and the ups and downs of this. I do. And it's again why I go back to the example of the black experience versus just kind of this moment in time is that we do tend to monetize our efforts. And I think when you commercialize and trivialize things in the way that we tend to do so, it loses its inherent value. Trends are good in that they can bring attention to certain things to a large group of people at one time. But then again, the problem with a lot of trends is that a lot of people just follow them because they don't want to, I guess, miss out on whatever that particular trend is at mm. the time. We have to create behaviors. We have to create learned successes in order for people to really absorb what it is that they're trying to get out of the experience. Is there anything that you think in this modern technology world or in this isolated world where we are not able to interact at the same level we could, is there anything that you think we could do to make these new learned experiences? Black people are very, very resilient and industrious people. The one thing that people could do to help is to not intentionally hurt. I think that every, if you go back historically and look at every marker of progress that we've had, and we've proven that even if you go back to Black Wall Street in Tulsa, which is you know a very popular example, we can create those things and we can create the circumstances that are ideal for us. It's just that there are people who feel threatened by that success because they feel like that success comes at their expense and they sabotage it. So really the primary thing that I think a lot of people can do to help us is just to not hurt us. Oh, we're just asking for people to be basic, decent human beings to each other. That's it. Right. I think part of it, playing off of what Randall said, is that when you have opportunities like, quote unquote, Black History Month, I think part of the key is to lean into some uncomfortable moments. You know, Black History isn't just Rosa Parks refusing to go to the back of the bus or Martin Luther King saying pretty things. There are ugly sides to it, like Black Wall Street. There are a lot of people that didn't know about Tulsa and what happened with Black Wall Street at all. Hmm. Until the past couple of years when it was highlighted in Watchmen on HBO. 
Yeah. That was a lot of people's first time even knowing about Black Wall Street. And I think if people grew up learning those ugly sides, I think that would make some difference. You know, I'm right there with you that especially as someone trying to learn and continue to grow as a white individual in a diverse area and with people that I love that are of diverse backgrounds. So if you're uncomfortable or it makes you look in and see something a little ugly, keep looking at it, figure out what's wrong. Right. Or like we're working out. A guy I know who's a trainer. He always says, if it don't hurt, it don't work. Right. If you're uncomfortable, that means you're pushing yourself. And if you're pushing yourself, that means you're learning something about yourself. And if you're learning something about yourself, you're learning how to improve. And if you're learning to improve, you can help other people improve. I agree. Before we go, um, would, yeah. is there anything that you guys would like to shout out in particular? Anybody that you want to get their name out there? Us. Penis Wild Black Podcast. Updated every week. PeniswildBlack.com. That's where you can find out all about us. Randall, do you have any church announcements? Well, I will say every week on our show, we do give flowers to people. We do give shout outs every week to right. people of note, flowers while they're still here. So if you want to see who we're checking for or who we're heaping praise upon for their contributions um, to our society, you can definitely listen to the show. Yep. And you guys also have your great Spotify list that you curate as well that really highlights some great black creatives. Yeah, we, we try to keep it mostly black. I try to do as much kind of lesser known artists as mm. possible. Uh, sometimes the song's just good, so I'll just pick it. Opinions While Black featured music you can find it on Spotify or Apple. And as someone who is a regular listener, I vouch for them. And it's not just because I've known Oz for almost half my life. It's because the content is good. It's genuinely engaging. It's y'all are brilliant. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. February 17th for the HCPL Mystery Radio Show on Facebook. Join our intrepid librarian, Miss Hatch, and Harlem Renaissance luminaries, Zora Neale Hurston, Langston Hughes, and Meta Warwick Fuller for the case of the disappearing statue. Taylor Monroe is luminous in her roles as Miss Hatch and Miss Hurston. You, sir, need to step back and take a look around. You missed a glaring fact. Eric Ray is dynamic as Langston Hughes. Now, now, let's walk through this step by step since the statue was dropped off. And the hapless library page lands. Yes, ma'am? And Nikki Shaw gives a touching and poignant performance as artist Meta Warwick Fuller. The telling and sharing of stories plays such an important part in building a private society. For if we do not share and tell our stories, how do we learn any perspective but our own? In a story full of twists and turns, everyone will be left guessing until the end of the HCPL Mystery Radio Show on Facebook, February 17th. Among the many reasons we celebrate in this short month of February, Pink Hearts, Red Roses, and Cherubic Cupid often steal the show. So in honor of the feels that make our hearts skip a beat, we have some recommendations that celebrate love in its many forms. Hey, it's Laura from Collection Development again, and I've got two romance recommendations for you. The first one is Romantically Challenged by Marina Adair, and it came out in July of 2020. It's about physician's assistant Annie Walsh, who's just moved to Rome, Rhode Island, to take up a new position after her fiancé called off their wedding at almost the last minute. 
Emmett Bradley, photojournalist and owner of the house that Annie rented, returns home unexpectedly on medical leave, resulting in a roommate situation that neither one of them expected or wanted. The challenges that each of these characters face as they struggle with complex relationships were heartbreaking to read about, but well addressed by the author. Uh, Emmett is in a three men and a baby situation and that he has a biological daughter whose mother, Michelle, has very recently passed away. And that daughter, Paisley, has largely been raised by her mother, her stepfather, and her uncle. While they're all struggling to deal with Michelle's loss, Emmett feels like he's the most overlooked of the fathers due since he travels all the time and he's having a really hard time connecting with his daughter. And then we have Annie, who was born in Vietnam, but she was adopted and raised by white parents. And she's struggling with the fallout from her long-term fiance's upcoming wedding, as well as her own identity. Her parents have always been very supportive, but it doesn't change the fact that she often wonders about her family in Vietnam or that she feels lost and judged when she connects with a group of Vietnamese women through her new job. I was nervous about reading this one because it's not own voices, but the author explains in an afterword that she and her husband adopted their now grown daughter from Vietnam when she was a baby and that she had numerous discussions with her during the course of writing the book. I really enjoyed it a lot, and I'm looking forward to the next book in the series, Hopeless Romantic, which is out on January 26th. The next book is How to Fail at Flirting, and that one is an Own Voices Romance by PhD Holding diversity trainer and author Denise Williams. This is her first book that I've read, and I believe it's her first book. Uh, Naya Turner is a tenure-pursuing professor at a Chicago university. Business consultants are called in by the new president. The future of her department and her job is very much in jeopardy. Having lost her confidence and turned into a bed of a recluse following the end of her relationship with an abusive ex-boyfriend, her friends write out a list of challenges meant to help her leave the frumpy wardrobe behind and re-engage with the world outside her home and work. When she meets Jake at a local bar, they hit it off to such a degree that it seems way too good to be true, and despite his being in town temporarily, they tentatively start up a relationship. Sure enough, the roadblock to their relationship finally appears in the form of a potential conflict of interest on Jake's part and a hit to Naya's professional relationship that she's not sure she wants to take after having worked so hard to rebuild it from the following the fallout from her previous relationship. The ex-boyfriend reappears in Naya's life and reading about her struggle to fight back was really hard. If reading about abuse, verbal or physical bothers you, this might not be the book for you, but I found it very rewarding to watch Naya find her footing again and fight back against her abuser. Jake struggles with some issues of his own from his previous relationship, but he's also very supportive of Naya. And my main frustration was that he was so open with her, but she kept withholding information from him. Perhaps bowing to librarian stereotypes, I am always excited by the potential of a book featuring a socially awkward, frumpy cardigan-wearing heroine, and I was absolutely not disappointed by this one, and I'm looking forward to reading more books by Denise Williams. Thanks, and happy reading. My name is Ellen, and I am the YA librarian for the Northwest Branch Library. If I had to choose a romantic YA book to read this Valentine's Day... I'd pick two. You Should See Me in a Crown by Leah Johnson follows Liz Lighty in her sudden bid for prom queen at her popularity-obsessed high school in Indiana. As a black girl in her preppy, all-white school, she wants to stay out of the way, and her social anxiety is off the charts. You never know when what you do is going to end up on social media. Her dreams fall through for her dream college when she loses a scholarship, and the only way to make up the money is to step into the spotlight. Troubling the situation further is meeting another queen candidate, Mac. Liz is struck by 
her freckles and her eyes, but she can't lose focus, not if she wants to win. Pairing this with I'll Be the One by Lila Lee makes for a great double feature. Sky Shin is a fat Korean girl who constantly puts up with her biggest critic, her mother. Told she can't dance, that she can't call attention to herself. Sky is still focused on her K-pop dreams. She gets into a talent competition and is paired with the handsome and age-appropriate celebrity Henry Cho. The bright, shining sky knows she has what it takes to win the competition. Both stories deal with heavier topics, illness, death in families, both experience racism and homophobia, while still managing to keep it lighthearted and sweet. They're both really fun reads for any pop culture fanatic. Both girls are set on similar journeys to take the stage and win, but they're both starting from very different places. Liz's anxiety and her desire to stay hidden and Sky's determination to not let anyone bring her down both make for different journeys to the same goal and both show that you can win and win love just by being yourself. Hi, my name is Loli, and I'm the Children's Programming Librarian at Spring Branch Memorial Library. My favorite Valentine book is Somebody Loves You, Mr. Hatch by Eileen Spinelli. This sweet story is about a shy and quiet man who keeps to himself until he unexpectedly receives a box of chocolates from the post office with an unsigned note that says, Somebody Loves You. The box cheers him up so much that it changes his whole outlook on life. He starts interacting with his co-workers, neighbors, and shop owners. That is, until he finds out, well, you'll just have to check out the book from the library. Or, better yet, watch it being read online at Storyline Online by actor Hector Elizondo, which is my favorite version of the book, at www.storylineonline.net. And one of the best websites to see and hear wonderful books being read by famous actors and actresses for free. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Using Our Library Voices from the staff of the Harris County Public Libraries. Join us in March for Women's History and more. If you enjoyed this program, we welcome you to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere that fine podcasts can be found. For more information about any of the books or resources mentioned in this episode, please visit our website at www.hcpl.net forward slash services forward slash podcast. This podcast was produced by Nancy Hugh and John Harbaugh, edited by Lloyd Hewen and John Harbaugh, hosted by me, Sedina Shaver, featuring Nancy Hugh, Rebecca Becerra, Sedina Shaver, Oz Longworth, D. Randall, Jennifer Finch, Jennifer Bacall, Laura Echevarria, Loli Diano, Ellen Caluza, Laura Smith.